Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. Let's talk about a, a term of art in writing called the fourth wall, specifically breaking the fourth wall. It's originally a, a term from the theater where a set has three walls. The fourth wall is the imaginary wall between the set and the audience. The audience sees the play through this invisible wall. The actors pretend not to see the audience, and the audience pretends the characters on stage can't see the crowd in the theater. The term is now used in the movies and in uh, literature. To break the fourth wall means that the character acknowledges the audience or the reader. In essence, the character winks at the reader. Generally, breaking the fourth, uh, the fourth wall should be avoided. Breaking the fourth wall can happen several ways. It can be a deliberate nod to the fact that the book has an author, that the reader is not living the story but is reading something produced by a writer. Here's an example from Charles Dickens in Oliver Twist, winking at the audience. Quote, as it would be by no means seemly in a humble author to keep so mighty a personage as a beetle waiting with his back to the fire and the skirts of his coat gathered up under his arms until such time as it might suit his pleasure to relieve him. Uh, everything's perfect in Oliver Twist, but here Charles Dickens is telling us, the reader, that the story has an author. Another example of Breaking the fourth wall is in the comic strip Blondie, where Dagwood, when flummoxed by his neighbor Herb or by the postal carrier or by his boss, Mr. Mr. Dithers, will look directly out of the frame toward the newspaper's reader. Dagwood is breaking the fourth wall, acknowledging that someone is watching the scene, and when he does it, it's, it's part of the comic strip's charm. Another way to break the fourth wall is to have a character do something so outlandish as to jar the viewer with its improbability and so to step outside the book or the movie or the play. Uh, Jonah Goldberg, the essayist, points to the James Bond movie Octopussy where 007, while swinging from a vine, lets loose with a Tarzan yell. After that, who can take anything seriously, in, including the evil villain Orloff? Goldberg contrasts Octopussy with the movie Indiana Jones, which, although having some funny moments, regarded itself as a serious business the entire way. Unless a novel, unless our novel derives some of its energy and charm from consistently breaking the fourth wall, it's best to avoid doing so. Readers want to be immersed in a story. They don't want to surface until they put the book down. They don't want they don't want the author to wink at them. They want to in John Gardner's famous phrase sink into the dream. Here's another uh, term of art, onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia is a word such as boom or whack that imitates a sound. Some of these words have become common and are commonly used in fiction. 
the boom of a cannon, the crack of a rifle. But writers sometimes go farther trying to use consonants and vowels to create a sound in the reader's mind. Here's an example. The ace of spades was attached to his bicycle frame and brushed the spokes as he rode along. Wacka, 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 wacka. Here's another one. Her head turned to the sound of ice cubes in the glass. Clink, clink. Wee oo! The siren echoed between the buildings. Wee oo! The jackhammer startled her. Rat a tat tat. Thunk! The arrow hit the tree next to him. She pulled the slot machine's handle. On quick succession, three cherries lined up. Lights flashed and bells sounded. Ding, 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 ding. What's the problem with these written noises? They make anything read like a Tudorville trolley story. Children's books are filled with dings and boings and chugga-chugga-chugga, and in adult novels they seem misplaced. Or they reduce the action to a cartoon. The wonderful Mad Magazine cartoonist Don Martin was famous for his written sounds. Aquaman walking around in a squishy wetsuit, sklishity-sklashity, sklishity-sklashity. A boxer being pummeled by another boxer, buckada-buckada. A man tripping on a banana peel and falling on his rear end, sklorch. Robin Hood pummeling little John, bab-crack-a-kit-hit. Don Martin's cartoons were laugh-out-loud funny. I laugh even thinking back on them. Uh, There was a time in my life when Mad Magazine was important. But these were cartoons. Most of the time, a writer of novels wants to avoid suggesting the story has similarities to a cartoon. And there's another problem with written sounds. Once the writer has started, where does it stop? What is the rationale in documenting some sounds and leaving others out? The world is filled with sounds. Ding dong, the elevator signal sounded. Julie ran toward the doors, her heels hitting the floor in a tick-a-tack-a, tick-a-tack-a. Swish went the elevator door as it opened. Hack, 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 harumph, Mr. Jeter, Mr. Jeter in the elevator coughed as he always did. Fees whoosh, the elevator door closed. Weoosh went the car as the elevator began its journey down. Ping, ping, ping came from the speaker announcing the third floor. Instead of using onomatopoeia, consider telling the readers about the sound. The owl's call was mournful. Rather than trying to replicate the sound, the owl called, woo, woo, woo. That's the end of onomatopoeia. We can hear the door close on that subject. Kathunk. Here's a question. Are writers nice to each other? I try to be nice, and I'll bet you do too. But writers, not necessarily all the time. Truman Capote said of Jack Kerouac, quote, That's not writing, it's typing. End quote. Gore, <laughs> Gore Vidal said of Capote, He has made lying an art. A minor art. H.L. Mencken on Henry James. An idiot, and a Boston idiot to boot, than which there is nothing lower in the world. But what 
goes around, comes around. Here's William Allen White on Mencken. With a pig's eyes that never look up, with a pig's snout that loves muck, with a pig's brain that knows only the sty, and a pig's squeal that cries only when he is hurt, he sometimes opens his pig's eyes, tusked and ugly, and lets out the voice of God, railing at the whitewash that covers the manure about his habitat. And here is Macaulay on Socrates. The more I read him, the less I wonder that they poisoned him. I'm going to be nice. I don't want any of these writers after me. Let's talk about the ending of our story, of our novel. As we can guess, and endings are important. The Nobel Prize winning Irish poet Seamus Haney writes, quote, The fluid, exhilarating moment which lies at the heart of any memorable reading, the undisappointed joy of finding that everything holds up and answers the desire that it awakens. That's Seamus Haney. Endings do several things. First, they resolve the major source of structural tension in the, in the novel. As Orson Scott Card says, the main story question, uh, will he find his fortune? Will she get revenge? Will they end up together? Will she escape? These are the main story questions. And the ending answers the main story question. Second, the novel, as it nears the end, should tie up all the loose ends. That's why I recommended in an earlier podcast maintaining a tie-up-later list, keeping track of those things that need to be resolved by the end of the novel. The reader can sense the end coming, and, of course, there are fewer and fewer pages uh, remaining on the right side, Large and small plot points begin or should begin to be resolved. The novelist David Groff puts it this way, The narrative ends on the tonic note, with balance restored and order reigning. And the novelist Lawrence Block writes about a good ending. This is Lawrence Block. What makes an ending work? Maybe the best way to answer that is to listen to a Beethoven symphony. By the time the last note of the coda has sounded at the end of the fourth movement, you damn well know it's over. When that last ringing chord hits you, every musical question has been answered, every emotional issue has been resolved, and you don't have to wait for the folks around you to start applauding in order to be certain the piece is done. And the third thing an ending should do is that it leaves the reader with an emotion. She turns the last page and and slowly puts the book down and feels what? What should that feeling be? We all die, so our uh, personal stories here on earth end on a troubling note. But the book-buying public does not want such an ending to their entertainment. We invest our emotions in characters. We live through them. We often adopt some of their language, maybe some of their outlook. At the end of the book, we want them to be happy. Maybe not perfectly happy. The, the characters can be wistful, perhaps, uh, perhaps still searching, but we want them to have the happiness that comes from 
fulfillment. Charles Fraser's dramatic and evocative Cold Mountain ended with the abrupt death of the main character, the Confederate soldier who left the hospital and walked home, uh, braving many difficulties and taking the reader along with him. He's killed in the last pages of the novel, abruptly and in something of a willy-nilly manner. Uh, Cold Mountain works well on every level, and this ending to the story sticks in the reader's mind and, and galls, and that's probably what the author, uh, Charles Fraser, had in mind. Nevertheless, I felt shortchanged. I had invested in the hero, uh, was walking along with him toward home, back to his mountain home and his sweetheart. Uh, suddenly I was walking alone. The consciousness I had been sharing through the novel was suddenly distinguished. Uh, Cold Mountain is a wonderful novel, but I was unhappy with the ending. It was a, it was a sad ending. Walt Disney said, I'm a happy ending guy. So are most novelists. They understand what the reading public wants. Uh, not everyone agrees with this, though. Uh, Stephen Maturin in Patrick O'Brien's The Nutmeg of Consolation, uh, one of his Aubrey and Maturin uh, series, said, uh, this is the character, Stephen Maturin, the conventional ending with the virtue rewarded and loose ends tied up is often sadly chilling, and its platitude and falsity tend to infect what has gone before, however excellent. Many books would be far better without their last chapter, or at least with no more than a brief, cool, unemotional statement of the outcome. Well, that's the author, Patrick O'Brien, speaking through his character, Stephen Maturin, and I disagree with that. I I want uh, to be, uh, if not happy, satisfied and fulfilled at the end of the novel. Here are some things to avoid as, as you wrap up the writing of your novel, as you get, as you're writing toward the end of it. The first is surprise endings. Surprise endings usually do not work. Here is the literary agent Donald Moss on surprise endings. Quote, writers either make the surprise too unpredictable or too obvious. End quote. The novelist Raymond Obsfeld adds, quote, What's especially annoying about this kind of ending is the intrusion of the writer's smug sense of being clever. End quote. The endings of our novels should flow naturally from the story. Perhaps the reader doesn't see everything develop, but at the end of the novel, uh, looking back, the reader should say the story makes sense. Another thing endings do uh, is uh, to resolve the main story question. You want to avoid resolving the main story question too early. Keep the reader in suspense until the end. Normally, only a few tie-up pages follow resolving uh, the story's main conflict. We'll talk about this later. Another thing to avoid when hurrying, uh, when rushing toward the end is rushing toward the end. You don't want to hurry as you near the end of the novel. Authors often write too fast because they are tired of the project or because they are thrilled to be nearing the end. I suffer from that. 
their story uh, might become sloppy and feel rush feel rushed to the reader. Quote, writers are often so excited to be finally nearing the finish line that they tend to rush the ending, Raymond Obstfeldt says. We don't want to rush the ending. It should be as good as the beginning. Here are some comments about the walkaway. A novel's climax is where the main story question is answered. Finding the answer has kept the reader moving page after page through the novel until the climax. Answering the story question resolves the principal source of tension in the novel. Yes, she did find love. Yes, she did find a cure. Yes, he will escape her imprisonment. Yes, she did get revenge. Yes, he found his fortune. The answer to these story questions is a big payoff for the reader. Let's take a quick break. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. The story's climax should come at the end of the novel, not three-fourths or seven-eighths of the way into the book, because you want the reader reading until the end. Events that happen after the climax, after the story's big question have been answered, are called the walkaway. It's where the cowboy rides off into the sunset. It's the they-lived-happily-ever-after part of the novel. Here's the key. The walkaway should be short, very short. Why should the material after the climax be just a few pages? There's a couple reasons. First, novels come in a huge variety, but almost all successful fictional protagonists are the strong, modest type. Or at least they have become strong and modest by the end of the story. Male or female, young or old, a detective or an heiress, a soldier or a fashion designer, they are Gary Cooper in High Noon. They do not hang around for long congratulations or celebrations after the main story question has been answered. Readers want modesty in their heroes. Uh, To go on at length after the climax, uh, receiving pats on the back, uh, learning about rewards, planning for the happy future, having the love interest swoon with delight, is considered unseemly in fictional heroes. It's a funny thing. But it's true. Readers don't like a hero to be overly congratulated at the end of the adventure. Here's another reason the walkaway should be short. After a couple of pages of post-climax happiness, it gets boring. Fiction is all about trouble. A successful novel in all genres, in all eras, is a document of trouble. Only trouble is interesting. 
After the climax, the trouble is over. And so is most of the novel's interest for the reader. Sure, the reader will be glad for a couple of pages of happiness at the end, but not much more than a couple of pages. How short? My edition of The Count of Monte Cristo has 1,095 pages. The last of the three villains is dealt with on page 1,083, where Danglars uttered a cry and fell prostrate. Isn't that a wonderful scene? He gets what he deserves. Edmond Dante's revenge is now complete. The subsequent walk away is 12 pages, about 1% of the novel. Alexandre Dumas knew well how to keep a reader on the hook. Uh, the great English novelist William Thackeray wrote, quote, began, to read, began to read Monte Cristo at 6 one morning and never stopped till 11 at night. That's William Thackeray on The Count of Monte Cristo. I feel the same way about that novel. I've read it, I think, three times. In Dennis Lehane's Shutter Island, and I need to do this without giving away the shocking ending to this novel, the hero Teddy Daniels finds the answer to the main story question on page 366. The novel ends on page 369. In Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, the main villain is dispatched on page 330, but the main story question, where will Richard Mayhew fit in, isn't answered until the last page of the novel on page 370. In Michael Crichton's The Andromeda Strain, and what a lesson on tense writing that novel is, the destruct mechanism is disabled on page 319. The novel ends five pages later. New novelists often want to let the hero be happy for a while at the end of the novel. The, the hero has earned it after all, after all the trouble you, the author, have put her through. But too much happiness, too long of a walk away, is a mistake. The topic of these episodes is, of course, good writing. Uh, and I, I try to talk about good writing, but sometimes I like talking about bad writing. Some very bad writing. William Topaz McGonagall of Dundee, Scotland, has been called the worst poet in the history of the English language. He was a loom weaver from Dundee, and he discovered his muse in 1877 and embarked on a 25-year career as a working poet, delighting and appalling audiences across Scotland and beyond. Here's uh, his short poem, poem, Beautiful Comrie and Its Surroundings. Ye lovers of the picturesque, away, away to beautiful Comrie and have a holiday, and bask in the sunshine and inhale the fragrant air emanating from the woodlands and shrubberies there. The charming village of Comrie is most lovely to be seen, especially in the summer season when the trees are green, <laughs> and nearby is Loch Urn and its water sparkling clear, and as the tourist gazes thereon, his spirits it will cheer. That's uh, William Topaz McGonagall. 
some of my favorite bad writing is found in the bulwer Lighten contest. This is uh, promoted by the English department at San Jose University. Uh, Edward bulwer Lighten's uh, 1830 novel, Paul Clifford, began with the immortal, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. Competitors in the contest try to outdo each other in the verbosity and baroqueness of metaphor used in the first sentence of an imaginary novel. So here's uh, the first sentence of a novel. Uh, written. Uh, the first sentence is written by Joel Phillips of New Jersey. Seeing how the victim's body, or what remained of it, was wedged between the grill of the Peterbilt 389 and the bumper of the 2008 Cadillac Escalade EXT, Officer Dirk Dirksen wondered why reporters always used the phrase sandwiched to describe such a scene since there was nothing appetizing about it, but still, he thought, they might have a point because some of this would probably end up on the front of his shirt. (laughs) That's Joel Phillip. Here's another recent winner. This is by Sue Fondry, a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh. Here's her first sentence. Cheryl's mind turn like the veins of a wind-powered turbine, chopping her, sparrows li- her sparrow-like thoughts into bloody pieces that fell onto a growing pile of forgotten memories. Here's one more. This is uh, Dave Zobel of Manhattan Beach, California, his winning entry. She resolved to end the love affair with Ramon tonight, summarily, like Martha Stewart ripping the sand vein, <laughs> ripping the sand vein out of a shrimp's tail, though the term "love affair" now struck her as a ridiculous euphemism, not unlike "sand vein," which is, after all, an intestine, not a vein, and so that tarry substance inside certainly isn't sand, and that brought her brought her back to Ramon. Those are some of the winners of the Bulwer, Bulwer Lighten contest. <laughs> That's wonderfully bad writing. We have arrived at the end of this podcast. Next time we'll talk about, for the first time, an important subject, the setting of our novel, the time and place where we put our characters. Hope to see you then, and until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.